0: Welcome to another night of warrior reads as always make sure that you've handled anything before bed, that the room is dark and that you're in a comfortable position. Remember as you're listening, if you get excited by a story or interested, don't worry about it. Now is not the time for your mind to be racing. Now is the time for your mind to be resting. As always, we'll have copies of the recordings available on our website as well as even the ability to order it should you want to in the morning. Now is the time for your reward for a good day lived, or a reminder to be a warrior tomorrow. I'll give you about five seconds to clear your head, and then we'll begin. Welcome, warriors. Tonight, our selection is from Million Dollar Habits by Robert Ringer. Tonight, we'll be going through Chapter 2 The Perspective Habit. Robert J. Ringer is a successful real estate guru and entrepreneur. This book is all about giving you the principles and practices to help you on your journey to master yourself and your life. Ringer tells us that it's all about building habits, and that's what sets apart wealthy, victorious heroes from those that never rise to glory. Tonight's story is all about encouraging you to be the warrior with strength, to maintain your perspective, even when facing the most challenging trials in life. Tonight, we will hear the story of his time in Mexico, how it was the most challenging and difficult circumstance that he had ever experienced. And will see him emerge, transformed, as a stronger, more masterful warrior. As Ringer says, my family's brush with disaster in Mexico was the most difficult course I have yet to take at the University of Life, and undoubtedly the most important. To say the least, it dramatically changed my perspective on life. Since Mexico, Many things I once looked upon as serious problems have been relegated to minor status or, in many cases, no problem at all. There's no question that the inability to view day-to-day problems in a relative light is a widespread human deficiency that can be the difference between success and failure. We all have problems, yes but it's important to learn to keep from blowing them out of proportion. You'll find routine problems in your life to be much less burdensome if you can successfully cultivate the perspective habit. By perspective, I'm talking about the capacity to view things on their relative level of importance. To develop the perspective habit, you must first get in the habit of asking yourself when confronted with negative situations, This is a problem, relative to what? As always, you can read this book at any time in the future and it's worth the read. But as you let go of the day and its victories and struggles and prepare for the rest that you deserve, allow your inner warrior to adjust to the right perspective that empowers and encourages you. And rest easy knowing that your problems might not be as bad as you may have feared. So relax and enjoy. It was exactly 8.10pm on March 18th as Mexicana flight number 913 touched down on the runway at the Manzanillo airport. I stared out the window into the darkness, wondering whether my decision to make Mexico my home for the next year had been impulsive. I had felt like this was the ideal time to get away, erase from memory the people webs that clouded my once clear mind, do some writing in peace and quiet, and reevaluate that unpredictable and mysterious experience called life. My wife was almost six months pregnant, but I had rationalized that. If there were any problems, we could always get to Guadalajara by air in less than half an hour. And who knows, maybe the medical facilities in Manzanillo area weren't quite as bad as people had led me to believe. In any event, the tentative plan was to come back to the United States after my wife reached her eighth month, have the baby, then return to Manzanillo to finish out the year. Besides. For once in my life, the timing was perfect. The right situation had presented itself at exactly the right time. About eight years earlier, a friend of mine had built a palatial 25,000 square foot villa on a mountaintop, just above Las Hadas Hotel. But his business activities had kept him from spending much time there in recent years. Anyone who has been an absentee homeowner in Mexico knows what that means. Problems. So, it was a genuine value-for-value situation. We struck a bargain whereby my wife and I agreed to live in the villa for about a year and watch over things. Try to instill some good spirit in the villa staff and get the administration of the place under control. Seem like a simple enough task. If you've ever lived in Mexico, that last statement undoubtedly already has you smiling. To live in Mexico is like enrolling in problem-solving 401. It's the ultimate test of one's ability to implement alternative thinking. During our first week at the villa, we experienced a few minor inconveniences. The water throughout the villa turned dark brown Then, it went off completely for two days, which meant none of the toilets could be flushed. We found incredible Hulk-sized rats in our kitchen, along with the expected economy-sized cockroaches, lizards, assorted dinosaur bugs. The air conditioning went off for several days, which made the solid concrete rooms feel like hermetically sealed tombs, and the telephone temporarily dropped dead two or three times. None of this may mean much to you if you've ever lived in Mexico and tried to get a repairman to come out and fix something. Our villa was on Monzanillo Bay, about 15 miles from the city of Monzanillo. We were actually closer to a couple of small pueblos, Santiago and Salahua, then Monzanillo. On our second day at the villa, we felt mentally prepared to take on Santiago and shop for groceries. Had someone told us in advance that Comanchos was the worst grocery store in Mexico, it still would have been a shock. That, however, was not what we had been told. We had been assured that Camanchos was by far the best market in Montezumillo. The worst stock shabbiest Comer grocery store in any ghetto of the United States would be a gourmet market in Santiago. The only place where I had seen less food on a store shelf was in Leningrad, and the customers in Leningrad were somber, but in Comanchos, people actually were smiling. I figured there must be something I didn't understand, so I started smiling too. I made up my mind then and there that it was going to be a long year, and that I had two choices. I could complain and suffer like a normal American, or I could adapt and get into the local people's way of life. It wasn't long before I actually began to look forward to going to Camacho's a couple times a week to shop and exchange Spanglish quips with Mr. Camacho and his employees. It's all a matter of how you frame the situation in your mind. After a couple of weeks of working hard to adapt to a radically new lifestyle, my wife and I settled down to a relaxed place, the likes of which I had never before experienced. We walked on the beach, read a lot, went to the Saturday open-air market in Santiago, fixed up the villa, and even ventured into the city of Manzanillo to shop. On balance, it was delightful, notwithstanding our paranoid concerns about irritable scorpions hiding under our covers, awaiting the arrival of our toes. However, it was also taking a toll on my wife. For one thing, the villa was so big and had so many stairs that it was the equivalent of a hard workout just to get through a normal day. Also, the streets and roads in much of rural Mexico were not built for pregnant women in mind. The road up the mountain to our villa consisted primarily of jagged rock, and most of the several miles up or down the mountain had to be taken at a speed of no more than 10 miles an hour. Even at that pace, you felt as if you were riding atop a wild bronco in slow motion. The streets of Santiago were a mixture of large stones and dirt and were even bumpier than our mountain road. It was April. The baby was not due until early July. But to be on the safe side, I thought it would be a good idea to see what medical facilities existed in the area and the unlikely event an emergency should arise. We asked several people, both Americans and locals, about the childbirth facilities and medical treatment available in the area and the consensus seemed to be no one has a baby in Montanillo. There simply were no available medical facilities, as we know them in the United States. The last ditch hope in a true emergency, we were told, was the Naval Hospital in the small town of Las Brisas, about 10 miles away. The next Sunday, we took a dive to check out the Naval Base facility in person. Again, culture shock. We didn't need to go inside. One look at the outside and you knew that no one with any serious medical problem gets out alive. The dilapidated building looked like something out of an old Bogart movie. My first words were, well, so much for emergencies in Manzanillo. No one has a baby here and lives to tell about it. At least we can totally eliminate this as an alternative, emergency or not. We laughed and joked about it as we pulled away in our old car, wondering how people survive in makeshift hospitals like this all over the world. Scary. Being an American has got to be the most sheltered, secure life on the planet. As I lay in bed that night, staring at the ceiling, my thoughts kept coming back to what we had seen at the naval base. Suppose, what if, no, unthinkable. I wouldn't even allow myself to consider the possibility. I simply couldn't let it happen, no matter what. I made up my mind that we had better plan to head for the States around the end of May, just to be on the safe side. Then, after all was well with the baby, we could return to Montanillo around the third week of July. I felt relieved at my decision, though my wife kept insisting that it really wasn't necessary to leave for the state so early. Unfortunately, her condition didn't give credence to her protests, because she gradually was experiencing more and more discomfort. Each trip up and down the bumpy mountain road seemed to be tempting the fates. Until finally, I made most of the treks into town alone in order to spare her the wear and tear. This created somewhat of a problem because my wife spoke fluent Spanish while I spoke practically none. Try that in the middle of Mexico if you want to find out what real insecurity is. By the end of the first week in May, My wife's condition was deteriorating at an accelerating pace, and I seriously began to think in terms of emergencies. I decided that we had better get to Guadalajara within the next week in order to have her checked out at a good medical facility, then decide whether to come back to Montanillo, stay in Guadalajara until the baby was born, or try to make it back to the United States. Unfortunately, Aeromexico had just gone broke, and that left only Mexicana Airlines two flights a week to Guadalajara as our single source of air travel. Worse, we were informed that international law would not permit a woman to fly if she was more than seven months pregnant. On top of that, all flights to Guadalajara were fully booked for weeks to come. It was getting to be a very unfunny situation. My anxiety heightened as I tried to assess our options rationally. I looked into renting a van and found that it would be a six-hour drive, assuming no problems in route, always a bad assumption in Mexico, and very uncomfortable in many stretches along the way. Would she be able to make it? I wondered to myself. I had no choice, I had to try. The vision of the so-called hospital in Las Brisas kept pushing me forward, forcing me to select from among the unpleasant alternatives available to us. I reserved a van for Saturday, May 13th and began packing our necessities. In the meantime, I had the responsibility for making sure the staff was taking care of the villa, the payroll was being met the whole place wouldn't come apart at the seams as soon as we left. I'd come to Mexico to relax and write, and things were changing rapidly. What did I know from gardeners and housekeepers who didn't speak English? Worse, the air conditioning had now stopped functioning altogether and needed to be completely overhauled or replaced. In addition, the water was periodically shutting off and the car was on the verge of breakdown. My wife was in such pain by Wednesday afternoon that we decided to set up an appointment to see a doctor in Manzanillo on Thursday, just to make sure we weren't taking a life and death risk driving to Guadalajara on Saturday. Through a friend of ours, Captain Eugenio Gutierrez, we secured an appointment with Dr. Abraham, who examined my wife on Thursday morning Dr. Abraham told us that my wife definitely would not carry the baby full term, but probably would not deliver for another month or so. He also diagnosed a huge, excruciatingly painful bulge in her upper left abdomen as a hernia. Nevertheless, it was his opinion that we should be able to make it to Guadalajara by then, assuming my wife didn't get any worse by Saturday. That evening, However, things did take a turn for the worse, much worse. As the night progressed, my wife began writhing in pain and screaming in anguish. This was a woman who never complained, and who had a very high threshold of pain. As she became more and more uncontrolled, reality began to set in. This was not a nightmare, it was not a movie, it was not something... I was reading about in the newspaper it was happening to us the ultimate emergency that every civilized person said nightmares about was here and now guadalajara was out the only question was what was going to happen right here in manzanillo i called hans rothberger our best friend in mexico who was public relations director at the Las Aras Hotel next door. He had been monitoring our situation closely for the past couple of weeks, so he was aware that things were not going well. When he heard my wife's screams in the background, he immediately set in motion a Mexican chain reaction by calling our mutual friend, Andy Schreier, who in turn called Captain Gutierrez, who in turn called the Red Cross, and Dr. Abraham. Within 30 minutes, the Red Cross arrived, carried my wife out in a shabby stretcher, and put her in an old truck ambulance. We then started down the mountain over the bumpy, rocky road we had come to know so well. I sat next to my wife in the ambulance and held her hand tightly. Hans followed behind it in his car as we made our way at a pace of about two miles an hour down the long mountain road with my wife moaning in pain. As the old ambulance bounced up and down, unmercifully, the Red Cross doctor told my wife that it would be necessary to examine her on the way to the hospital. I watched his face closely as he proceeded with the examination, and immediately saw that something was wrong. He spoke to my wife in Spanish, and she relayed his words to me. You're going to have this baby tonight. Impossible, I thought. It can't be happening. Not here. Not in Manzanillo. Not two months premature. Not at the Naval Hospital. It was only a few weeks ago that we were laughing about how we could never consider the Naval Hospital as a viable alternative. Now, I just wanted to awaken from my nightmare. I wanted to clamp magic wings on my wife and myself and zip off to Guadalajara where we would be safe from the unknown. Somehow, in some way, I just couldn't allow it to happen. But the reality was that it was happening. One of those inevitabilities of life was upon us we were ahead towards the Naval Hospital, where the fate of my wife and unborn child would soon be decided. As the ambulance ended its journey down the mountain road and settled into the old highway en route to Las Prisas, all I could see through the dirty windshield was a kaleidoscope of darkness, beat-up cars, people occasionally darting across the road, and smoke from the day's burning of fields had settled over the highway. The siren of our vehicle droned in my ears as I tried to picture the events that lay ahead. When we finally arrived at the Naval Hospital, the staff immediately prepared my wife for delivery, then wheeled her into a labor room. I was not allowed to go in the room and was told to stay behind a three-foot high wall about a dozen steps from the labor room. In the sweltering humidity, I paced the floor for hours, grimacing at my wife's every moan and scream. Throughout the night, my mind gradiated wildly in an attempt to project all possible scenarios. As I continued my automation-like pacing, I reflexively swatted mosquitoes and watched cockroaches scoot in front of me without so much as a pause. No one, I thought to myself knew so little about childbirth as I. What were the odds of two months premature baby surviving under the best circumstances? I wondered. I had no idea. Even more important, what were a premature baby's chances under the worst of circumstances? Horrible thoughts continuously bombarded my mind, and my head pounded as my wife's screams became louder and more desperate. Finally, at about 2 a.m., Dr. Abraham came out of the labor room and approached me with a somber expression on his face. He said something in Spanish that I didn't understand, then motioned for me to get Hans, who had been sleeping in his car outside. As I rushed out to the car, I thought to myself, The baby's dead. The baby died. I could only hope that my wife was all right. After I woke Hans, He and I hurried back inside, where Dr. Abraham began talking to him in Spanish. About a minute elapsed before Hans turned to me and explained, in a grim and sympathetic tone, that they had tried several times to get the baby out, but each time they had started to lose his heartbeat. The umbilical cord was apparently wrapped around his legs. There was only one hope, a caesarean operation. I grimaced and bit down on my bottom lip. This was no nightmare, and there were no fairy tale wings with which to make a movie ending escape to Guadalajara. Zero hour had arrived. The cataclysm was upon us. There would be no reprieve. I was handed a document to sign, written in Spanish, of course, and a pen. It's the moment every human being fears will arrive one day. A matter of life and death over which he has absolutely no control. The heat, the humidity, the mosquitoes, the cockroaches. A dying baby who's never seen the world. Beloved wife screaming just a few feet away. A foreign language document to be signed. There are situations in life where the choices ultimately come down to only one. In this case, the single choice was to sign the document. As they wheeled my wife into the hall toward the operating room, she called to me in a barely audible tone, I love you, Robert. Tears streamed down my face as I responded in a badly cracked voice, I love you too, Esther. I watched as they rolled her down the hallway, thinking to myself that I might never again see alive the kindest most sensitive, loving, compassionate human being I'd ever known. The fate of the most important person in my life was now completely out of my hands, controlled by strangers in a third world country. How could I possibly have allowed us to get into this kind of situation, I asked myself. Two nurses who had been sleeping in cots jumped up and rushed into the operating room right behind my wife then the doors closed behind them. The wait was on. I had almost two hours to replay three possible scenarios in my mind, all of them cataclysmic. My wife might live and the baby die. My wife might die and the baby live, or both my wife and the baby might die. I was reeling emotionally, still clinging to the hope that I would wake up and discover that none of this was really happening. One moment, I would find myself trying to comprehend how I could possibly cope with the third and worst of all possible scenarios. The next moment, my mind would completely quit on me, incapable of thinking the unthinkable. The apocalypse continued. There was no general anesthetic available. And it took 45 minutes of prying and sticking for the anesthesiologist to get the local anesthetic to my wife's spine. At one moment, she stopped breathing, but they were able to bring her back just in time. As she lay on the operating table, her insides exposed, she was able to witness the entire operation in the mirror above her. It was a tense, monumental struggle. But the doctor finally succeeded in pulling the baby from her with a force so great that it lifted her entire body off the table. Finally, at 4.12am, the doors of the operating room flung open and out charged a young doctor, surgical mask covering his face, carrying the baby in a frayed towel-like cloth. He was moving fast as he went by me on the way to an antiquated incubator behind the glass divider wall. The baby wasn't crying, but he was breathing, barely. As the doctor tried to get the baby into the incubator, he accidentally knocked off the lid and it fell directly into the baby's face. Again, I bit hard on my lower lip as I watched the scenario unfolding. Just a few feet away, unable to properly adjust the top of the incubator, The young doctor picked up the baby, carried him down a hallway, and took him into another room that housed several more empty incubators. In the meantime, a nurse came out of the operating room and assured me that my wife was going to be all right. So I hurriedly followed the young doctor. In the intensive care room, he began frantically working on the infant in an effort to keep him alive. It occurred to me that if the baby didn't make it, I might never know what he looked like, so when the doctor seemed to have things somewhat under control, I hesitatingly asked if it would be possible for me to see my infant son up close. Reluctantly, the doctor allowed me to take a quick look. That moment will forever live in my memory. The poor little guy was struggling for every breath he could snatch, and barely had enough strength to eke out an occasional almost an audible cry. Nevertheless, premature and all, he was absolutely beautiful. Dr. Chagoya, the doctor who had rushed in and out of the operating room, explained that the baby's respiratory system was poorly developed and that it would be a touch-and-go situation, particularly during the first 24 hours. Infection, pneumonia, heart failure, everything was a danger at this point, Crude as their equipment was, the medical staff got the baby hooked up to a respirator, inserted breathing tubes into his trachea, planted an intravenous feeding tube into his arm, and began working on him methodically. After Hans finally departed from the hotel, I continued to pace the sweltering, quiet corridors of that hospital, thinking, thinking, thinking. Hour after hour, I paced swatting the mosquitoes that relentlessly stalked me. As my mind floated aimlessly, I kept coming back to two words, perspective and reality. At a time like this, I thought to myself, how petty and inconsequential most of the day-to-day problems of life seem to be. All the little slights, the hurts, the injustices, the bad breaks, the financial losses we experience as we stumble through life in our waking state of dreams. It seems so unimportant when viewed in a relative light. When juxtaposed against the life or death of someone we dearly love, how absurd they seem. Each time I passed the intensive care room, Dr. Chigoya was standing over my son, Andrew Troy, watching his every movement, adjusting the maze of tubes sticking out of him, massaging his hands and feet, administering oxygen to him intermittently, checking his heart rate and pulse, and above all, never taking his eyes off him. Whenever Dr. Chigoya looked up and saw me, he spoke with his eyes. He's one of the most compassionate young men I've ever known, a man who really cares. At about 8 a.m., another doctor, Dr. Hector Americo, relieved Dr. Chigoya, I was concerned, but not for long, Dr. Americo too, exhibited seemingly infinite compassion. Once when Andrew's heart stopped beating, Dr. Americo alertly sprang into action and quickly got it pumping again with rapid massage. This remarkable young man stood by the baby's incubator for 24 hours without taking a single break, adjusting tubes, massaging, and always watching. In the midst of a horrendously insecure situation, there was one thing about which I felt totally secure. What Mexican physicians lack in facilities, equipment, and technology, they more than make up for it. Compassion, care, and concern. It's impossible for me to describe the bond that I felt with these men. I was truly touched by their greatness as human beings. Many may have the intellect to practice medicine, but only a small percentage have the character to practice people medicine. We were most fortunate to have on our side a number of these extraordinary people medicine doctors, the finest I could ever hope to meet in my lifetime. These marvelous, compassionate, caring doctors, together with a number of equally compassionate, caring nurses painstakingly brought my wife and son back from the brink of death. What began as an ordeal of nightmarish proportions evolved into nothing short of a miracle. In less than a week, both my wife and the baby stabilized, and we were able to return to the villa together. On that fateful night a week earlier, we had left the villa as two we easily could have returned as one. Instead, we returned as three. That which almost ended our lives made us infinitely stronger and certainly gave me a much healthier perspective of my own little world.